The Retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. We, uh, as we do sometimes on the show are going to dissect, if that's maybe the right word, that might be a little too clinical, uh, a, a recent article in the popular press uh, regarding retirement and retirement planning and retirement experiences, one might say. And uh, today uh, we're going to dig into an article that caught Jim's eye. He saw it before I did. Uh, a recent article came out in the Wall Street Journal, at least the online version. I don't know if it was in the print version as well, but in the online version, uh, titled, Here's What Retirement with Less Than a Million Dollars Looks Like in America. And they uh, interviewed five retirees about their financial lives, and they fall into that particular category. So um, we'll let Jim expand on why that particular article caught his eye beyond the obvious retirement planning aspects of folks wanting to retire. But... Uh, I think uh, I'll make a prediction right now. There's, uh, it's not smooth sailing and uh, carefree in America, retiring with less than a million dollars. There's going to be trade-offs and issues to deal with, and we'll uh, find out uh, how these folks try to do that. And we'll, I'm sure, relate some of those experiences to how we view and approach retirement planning here at our firm. And on the podcast, what we talk about on the podcast here is how we do things in, quote, real life. But, uh, yeah, so I'll bring Jim on and he can maybe clue us in as to what really caught his eye here. He'll uh, need to unmute himself before he can speak. But uh, I, you know, you said you were going to bring me on. I literally had my glasses off and I'm cleaning the lens so I can't see. And I just figured you had unmuted me and. I was oh. chatting, and apparently you didn't unmute me, so I had to put my game glasses back on. Well, there you go. <laughs> welcome, <laughs> welcome to the world of the unmuted. God, yeah. Well, the, the, welcome to the world of people can't see without glasses. See, this is one of the challenges of us not um, recording in one studio like we did 
mostly years ago. But lately, we record mostly separate, even when we're in the same building. We've got two separate little locations for recording, just because it makes the audio a little bit cleaner that way. But back in the day, I would have seen you frantically polishing your glasses across our <laughs> very large conference table that served as a recording platform. And uh, uh, we lack that in this format. So I just have to, uh, we, we're just feeling our way through, folks. We, we do. And um, Chris is not in the office. I am. So you are recording from your home. I'm recording mm-hmm. in the office, but not in my penthouse suite, as Chris likes to word it. Uh, I'm instead in my actual physical office on the first floor. Uh, I don't think I can use the penthouse suite's recording system, can I, when you're at home? Um, no, that would require some technical abilities that I think I would lack- stretch beyond your limits, yes. <laughs> So in other words, I'd have to turn a computer on? And maybe a couple other steps, but yeah. But, a couple other steps. But okay. this works fine. Your office is nice and private. He has, uh, uh, I'll point out, not only uh, the penthouse recording studio, but he also has the largest private office in the building, uh, which is probably appropriate since his name's on the sign outside. But it's uh, easily three times the size of anyone else's office and has a nice uh, sitting area and a fire. He has his own fireplace. I freeze upstairs in a, a very poorly insulated attic structure um, when I'm in. You know, today I'm nice and cozy because I'm in my home office, but yeah. No, no, I, I don't want to go down this, 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 this mm-hmm. path because we have to get to a task at hand and that's our EDU show. But. Chris's office is not cold. It does not have a fireplace, but Mayanna's mm-hmm. main office has a fireplace. Mm-hmm. Jacob's office has a fireplace. Mine mm-hmm. has a fireplace. Yep. All gas fireplaces, yep. folks. I did that when I built this office yep. because everybody likes a different temperature. Mm-hmm. So this way you can kind of set your office to be any temperature you want. Let me just and emphasize that Chris's office is the only one without a fireplace. Correct. Yeah. And everyone else who doesn't have a fireplace mm-hmm. has an electric baseboard heat that they can control mm-hmm. personally for their own office heat. Chris does not have that. But you do have, this is where I'm going with this, mm-hmm. your own furnace and your own AC system that runs off of its own settings right from your office. So stop mm-hmm. trying to get people to feel sorry for <laughs> you. You have a heating system totally independent from ours and a cooling system independent from ours, and you can set it as hot and as cold as you want. You're sure making that attic sound good to everybody. It's, yeah, attic. You've got, you have the biggest office than anybody. It just isn't as pretty Well, if as you mine. count all you know, the storage room aspect of the attic, yeah, I guess so. Okay. <laughs> all right. Anyways, folks, before we go in, I... I want to give a little shout out, a little welcome to the uh, taxpayers of Washington State mm. who probably also heard. Uh, do you have a little clap thing, Chris? Do you want to welcome them to actually paying uh, taxes? Uh, and you want to clap about that? I'm uh, being facetious. Okay, I'll, I'll put on the, uh, yeah, the sarcastic clap. <laughs> what do you mean, welcome to the world of taxpayers? That's the sarcastic clap. <laughs> sarcastic clap would have been. Oh, <laughs> oh, the slow. That's the sarcastic. Clap. I don't. I don't have that one ready. 
what I mean by this, I subscribe to some services, folks, that give me news feeds of all sorts of things. Anyways, um, Leanberg Service came out uh, this morning uh, with a heads up that uh, the state of Washington's Supreme Court has upheld their capital gains tax. The state of Washington has no income tax, folks. They do have an estate tax. If you pass away in Washington uh, with very, very modest level of assets, uh, they will be subject to estate taxes. But they don't pay any income taxes and they haven't been paying any capital gains taxes, I guess, because they, they being the, the Washington legislature, passed a, a year or two ago a uh, capital gains tax in the state of Washington of 7%. And it had a, or has, according to the Leanberg uh, summary, which is very, very brief, so I don't have the whole history of this, a 7% capital gains tax with a $250,000 deduction against it. So the only thing that I can think of, Chris, is your first $250,000 of cap gains is not going to be subject to taxes, I guess. And then anything above that would be. I'm not 100% certain, but I do know the uh, Supreme Court of Washington came out yesterday and, uh, excuse me, overturned a lower court's ruling, the lower courts ruled that the capital gains tax that the Washington legislature passed was unconstitutional in Washington state. The Supreme Court overruled that yesterday, said it is a constitutionally legal excise tax, subject again to the $250,000 standard deduction. So I admit, Chris, that's a huge, huge deduction. I think right now they're going after the quote unquote wealthy, but also people most likely selling homes and things of that nature, larger Mm -hmm. uh, capital gains items that might have been held for for quite some time. But do recognize folks in Washington, this is all politicians want to do. They get things passed by making it seem like it's not going to apply to most people. And it wouldn't surprise me over the coming years or decade or so. Uh, that these dollar amounts are lowered and the tax might eventually start to to uh, impact more and more people. Just I'm just thinking out loud on that. Or the one. classic but, technique, which is to uh, not adjust the numbers for inflation so slowly over time. It just due to uh, inflation on values of assets, they'll it'll tend to capture more and more people in these types of things. The which is what the federal government did right. brilliantly in 1983 with Social Security. Right. When they first started taxing Social Security, they never increased those dollar amounts for inflation, and they got it passed by saying less than 1% of Social Security recipients were going to be subject to the tax. Well, who could argue that? That 1% must have been really wealthy people. Mm-hmm. And now it uh, in, encompasses uh, more than half of Social right. Security uh, recipients. And I, I think in some point in time, it'll be nearly all Social Security recipients. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Anyways, just wanted to sarcastically welcome our Washington listeners to so, a new tax. <laughs> taxes. Yes. Um, I do know I met a few Washington people out and about on my travels. And the people in Washington who live along the Oregon border, they have it made in the sense They have no income tax on their income. And then they drive over the border into uh, Oregon 
and they buy their stuff there because there's no sales tax. Mm -hmm. So they can kind of have tax-free income, at least at the Washington level, mm -hmm. and uh, no sales tax. Interesting. Okay. All right. So this article, again, I'm just going to read through it, folks, and just opine a little, and I'll let Chris uh, always chime in uh, himself. It's, we're not, we don't really have an agenda, or I don't have an agenda on today's show. We have done this in the past when I read an article that kind of just strikes my fancy. And I think, gee, I want to chat with this a little bit on, on the podcast. It does deal with retirees who have less than a million dollars, which was what a few of our listeners had asked for. If you remember, Chris, when we did a fun number discussion, mm -hmm. uh, the person that uh, we randomly chose, the hypothetical person, had uh, $2.8 million saved. And we kind of walked through how that person might theoretically be able to develop the, their fund number using our concept of retirement planning. And people said, gee, you're ignoring the people with, with less than a million. And then this article came out and I kind of thought of that a little. But as I read it, Chris, I realized a lot of the issues that are impacting people with less than a million also impact people with more than a million. And a lot of the issues that these people are talking about may be able to be addressed with a sound retirement plan. We're not going to uh, pick apart the five people that they highlighted in this article. We're not going to give specific advice that, oh, if these people were our clients, we tell them to do this, that, and the other thing. Or say, oh, this person should have done this differently or that differently. That's not what I want to do here. I just want to read the article and share with you a little of my thoughts and hopefully get some people who are listening to think of their own situation. It may not mirror everything perfectly, but maybe some of our thoughts can inspire you to start to think about your retirement situation a little bit differently. Uh, anything you want to add, Chris? I know you have no idea where I'm going with this outside of what I just said, but anything you want to add? No, not at this time. I Like I said, I hadn't seen this, uh, not that I read the Wall Street Journal cover to cover, but I do kind of scan through it on occasion. I hadn't picked up on this one, so I have not yet read this article. But. No problem. All right. Well, I will begin. It came out March 24th, and it had an update uh, on that date, so I don't know if it came out earlier than March 24th, but uh, it begins. Many Americans dream of saving $1 million for retirement. Most fall far short of that. Then it gets into a lot of data that I don't necessarily think we need to get into. But it does say total household balances in retirement. And this is according to the Employee Benefit Research Institute. For people between the age of 55 and 64, is on average about 413, almost $414,000. That's based on 2019 numbers. It's already 2023. And granted, we have had a, a bit of a market correction uh, during that time period, but there was some growth in 2020, 21, 22 before the, uh, excuse me, not 22, uh, 20 and 21 before the contraction in uh, 22. The main point is, Chris, the article points out, there is nothing magical about a million dollars. But then the author points out the obvious in this journal report. 
But the less one saves, the bigger the risk that unforeseen shocks or setbacks in life can derail your plans. Mm-hmm. I agree pod, that that's probably the biggest issue. I... Exactly. And, that, and I was going to say, let's pause there because we see this, folks, constantly. And yes, Chris and I will admit the vast majority of people we work with have more than a million dollars of assets uh, saved for their retirement, whether it's uh, pure liquid assets or a mixture of liquid and illiquid assets. Most of the people we work with probably reflect more of the 2.8 million we used in our example on the previous shows that I just alluded to. But even those people have life shocks that derail their retirement. And the the author, is it a reporter or an author when you write in a newspaper? It's really a story, not a reporting, but, and it's two people who, who wrote it, two women. I'd call, in an article like this, I'd call them authors. Okay. The authors pointed out something that can apply to anybody, whether you are a billionaire or, or living on just social security. It is the unforeseen shocks and setbacks in life that will derail your retirement. And we see that constantly. And that really comes down to the fact that no matter how much you have, 100,000, a million, 10 million, 20 million, you can kind of formulate your lifestyle around that. Kind of you, you know what you have or you know what you've, you've amassed based on your lifestyle and your lifestyle before retirement uh, is kind of goes hand in hand with how much you're able to save for the most part. If you think about it, if you were only able to save a hundred thousand dollars over your lifespan, you probably had very, um, you know, modest, uh, uh, career as far as earnings go. Um, and so you, but you lived to learn, you know, you, you learned to live, uh, under that. So you had an appropriately sized and, and cost house and you kept your utilities and you didn't, you know, splurge on super expensive food and those types of things. Probably, you know, it's kind of reflected in that amount you were able to save probably does reflect the lifestyle you lived and, and then living forward. If you don't, you know, plan to change that drastically, uh, you could kind of budget for and maybe learn to live with mostly social security and then a little bit of extra money here and there. You obviously don't have a lot if you've only got a hundred grand in my extreme example. Um, but, um, even someone who has a lot more than that, they've, they've got higher bills. They've got more expensive living standards. They probably spend more on dining out and all those kinds of things. And, um, so they can kind of, I guess, pick a reasonable retirement date and then knowing what they know, they know what they have kind of budget around that given their lifestyle that they've practiced living but as you age, these things tend to come out of left field that are a bit surprising, a bit different than what you might have faced in your younger years. I think mostly of you know healthcare surprises uh, as the biggest one for retirees as you age, and it has really nothing to do with you being retired. It has to do with you aging, which we're all doing. Uh, some days I age much faster than others. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you can appreciate that, others out there. But... Um, um, you know, being in a position to both simultaneously fund your lifestyle and to be prepared for those unforeseen circumstances can be challenging. And when you have these, you know, lower starting balances, that's where the big challenge comes in. You just don't have a cushion for something big coming out of left field. 
Right. And that ties in, folks, to what I was talking about during a whole fun number series. If you remember, as we always do, or as I always prefer to do, it's not just sharing with you as a podcast listeners and with people who decide to work with us how we do things. It's very, very important for people to understand why we do things. And I shared openly with everyone why I developed the concept of the see-through portfolio or minimum dignity floor against secure income and the concept of fun number. And part of what I shared with everybody is that for eight years of my life, I worked in a career where day in and day out, I met, quote unquote, the other guy. Because we all know these things that come out of left field are going to always happen to someone else. They're never going to happen to you. But when you spend eight years of your life responding to call after call after call after call to someone who got impacted by something, and it doesn't necessarily even have to be as a police officer that you're dealing with crime all the time. We sometimes had to go to houses on what were called welfare checks. If you're a police officer or a former officer listening to this, you're nodding your head in approval. You know what a welfare check is. I went on those and I would find the people who died unexpectedly of a heart attack or a stroke inside their homes and nobody knew. Or I would go to situations where there were people in wheelchairs or bedridden or people who were blinded or using a cane. And they go on to share with you that, well, everything was fine, but then they had an accident or they were fine, but then they were diagnosed with this or that or the other thing. So when you spend a career working with people who were the other guy, you start to realize the other guy is pretty damn common. And you're listening to the other guy. I had that stroke. Everybody knows that a little over two years ago now. That doesn't happen to everyone, thankfully. So things like that can happen. And it drove me to come up with the concept of rather than limiting people on what they could spend every year, which is what the industry does. It's predicated on a Monte Carlo produced probability statistic projecting your retirement. And then if the probability statistic that you won't outlive your money in a 30 year period, God forbid if you live for 31, 32, 33 years, or, and not everyone projected 30 years on Monte Carlo. Some will project 20 or 25. But if you are still alive at the end of the Monte Carlo projection period, you very well may have no money. What if you lived longer than that period? Anyways, my point is, under that type of approach to retirement, if you didn't like the probability... Or if the markets change due to sequence risk, everybody understands sequence of return risks. You're living in it now. If you retired over the last two or three or four years, or if you are two or three, four years from retirement, your experience sequence of return risk because of what 2022 did and what 2023 is 
we don't even know where it's going to go yet. Uh, is it going to end bad or is it going to turn out to be nothing? We don't know, but there's tons of volatility, that sequence of return risk. To control that or to say, hey, your, your probability of outliving your assets is, is getting real low. That's not good. Um, what we have to do is reduce your spending, that the whole industry is predicated on telling you not to do something. Don't spend more than 4%, 3%, 2%, 2.8%, whatever it may be. I never liked that because I kept meeting the other guy. And I kept thinking to myself, why am I going to do this in the very limited amount of time I have left? I'm entering retirement. I'm probably in my early 60s, mid 60s, early 70s. Somewhere in that time frame, I know a lot of our listeners might be in their late 50s and trying to retire early, but for the most part, we deal with people between 60 and 70 when they first pulled the trigger. But you also realize at that time, your life can change in an instant, and it's most likely going to be delivered or, or driven by a medical issue. And I never felt comfortable, Chris. And nowhere in this article does it address any of that. But I never felt comfortable telling people, yes, you worked your entire life. No, you can't spend your money because you might. You might need it later. But there's not many years left to do fun. That's why we break it to go, go, slow, go, no, go. We fully acknowledge those are terms we didn't come up with, a different Stein did. I can never remember the gentleman's name. Chris does. His last name was Stein, was from Colorado, came out with this concept in the 70s. We just borrowed the concept and applied it. At least we borrowed his verbiage. We applied it to fun, not all retirement spending, just fun spending. And we clearly see it with our clientele. They go through a go-go, slow-go, no-go. And sadly, Chris, you know this because you see it as well. Some of them just go from go-go to no-go very quickly because of a medical issue. And it can happen very early in retirement. So I do like that the authors pointed that out, that it's the unknown. That's what the people with less than a million. But the implication is only if you have less than a million. Gee, if you had a million or more, you don't have to worry about that. That's BS. We have most of our clients have more than a million or two or three or four dollars. And they still worry about this. Maybe not to the extreme as someone with less. I will concede that of, as far as outliving your assets go. But they always worry as everyone does that at any time you can be the other guy and that other guy exists, trust me. Okay, that's all I wanted to mention on that. I think I captured what I'm trying to say. So they get in, I'm not gonna read everything. This is a very long article, Chris, and very short podcast. So I'll just kind of capture a few essence of this next, the, the first couple they highlight. I'm not gonna give their names, they live in Maine they have $411,000 of savings and investments. Not quite the way it may appear at first blush, and I'm a little confused on a few things, but we'll get to it. And they spend about $50,000 a year. And they show some pictures of this couple, and uh, they, they seem nice. Uh, she, excuse me, he is 70, 
she is 75. So age difference, typical that we see, but it's usually the other way around. It's usually the woman is younger and the man is older, but in this particular case, it isn't. The woman is older and the man is younger. One unique thing when I saw this, Chris, and you might have thought the same thing, I'll be thinking the same thing. There may not be a widow-widower scenario if both live to life expectancy. They did share a little bit in the article that one is a little bit more healthy than the other. But because of the age difference between them with her being older, uh, they may pass away at a similar time. And perhaps a, a widow-widower issue may or may not be a problem uh, if they live more towards life expectancy. That's just one thing I thought of when I, I saw their age. Uh, anything running through your mind? Yeah. The uh, only thing I'll point out when we're talking about average life expectancy, just make sure you don't do your planning around assuming you're going to, you know, that to happen. That's the risks in retirement. If you're trying to deal with them, the risks, one of the greatest risks, of course, is living beyond average. And average just means there's you know half of people that go beyond that. So always be careful when you're doing your own conclusions and number crunching. If you're out there and do it yourself or world doing that, uh, it's prudent to extend your mortality ages beyond average life expectancy from the statistical tables. Well, one thing the article, and that's very good. Thanks for pointing that out. One thing the article mentions is that 15 years ago, so when the husband was 55 and the wife was 60, 15 years ago, the husband's account, and again, he was 55 at the time, it was 2008, lost money when the S&P fell 38%. Now, the article just references Mr. Jones' retirement account took a hit and he was spooked by the S&P 500's 38.5% decline. They never say how much his portfolio fell. They just say he was, quote unquote, spooked. But by his own admission, he sold because he was spooked and he put his money in the stable value account inside his 401k. We've talked about those accounts before. They're only available in 401ks. They, as the name implies, are intended to maintain a, a stable value and earn a stated amount of interest every year. They're the, usually the safe money option in a lot of 401ks. They have a practical place without a doubt in 401ks, as do any cash-like holdings. But they should be viewed more uh, as a place where a retiree may pack some money that they definitely want to spend over the next X amount of years and make sure they don't uh, drop in any of the other investments inside the 401k. I'm a little hesitant when I read or hear of someone who was 55 and quote unquote spooked and moved money from equities to stable value. But then by his own admission, Chris, he left it there for 10 years. That's a long time to leave money in an account paying about 1%. So... The gentleman's son who took over the management of his assets since 2018, 10 years after 
so the gentleman would have been um, 65 at the time. His son, who's a physician, took over the management of his assets and put his father folks into a 60-40 portfolio in 2018. But there was 10 years of recovery that was missed. Now, I'm not passing judgment on any of this, and I only share it because it's in the article. But I also want to implore anybody listening to this. I don't know when this gentleman retired. Did he retire at at 56 and that's why he was panicking at 55? Or did he retire at 65 when his son took over the management? It doesn't say. It doesn't tell me when he retired. But in 25 years of doing this, Chris, no one has ever said to me on day one of retirement, Jim, I'm retired. Give me all my money. You don't need all your money on day one. So even if he was retiring at 56, there was some of his dollars could have stayed invested because if he had a see-through portfolio, the concept that I came up with, this this doesn't exist. Don't Google see-through portfolio. I don't think anything's going to pop up. It's just a concept that I came up with to highlight the fact that you don't need all your money in day one of retirement. So if you could see into your portfolio and identify the spending that those dollars are earmarked for, stop calling your assets investments and start calling them what they are, deferred spending. And just identify what the spending is that they're going to be earmarked for. And perhaps if this person had done something like that, they may not have felt as panicky in 08 when the S&P was down 38%. Again, the article does not share with me any information. Did he have an aggressive portfolio that was down 50 and he was panicking over a 38% loss? Did he have a conservative portfolio that was down five, but he was still freaking out over a 38% loss? I don't know. What I'm trying to say is everybody, well, not everybody, for people who relate to what I'm saying. This isn't for everyone. Some people may not like my approach. And if you don't, don't do it. But if you kind of like the approach, try to start seeing into your portfolio and realizing, especially now with 2022's loss, This isn't the time to sell and move to cash, albeit cash does pay a hell of a lot more than the 1% this person earned for nearly a decade. But still, you generally don't need all your money in day one of retirement. So do that see-through portfolio concept. Go back and listen to our podcast series on the fun number. I talk about that concept and how you can start identifying the spending And starting to realize in retirement that, wow, some of these dollars I may not need for 8, 10, 12, 15, 20 plus years. My goodness, who cares if they're down in 2022 or in this gentleman's case, 2008? That's okay. Those dollars can stay. And then, of course, dollars that you would need earlier in retirement then yes, those dollars you would want to put perhaps in the stable value fund like he did. Remember in 08, that's all that was available was a a 1% stable value fund. The Fed was dramatically cutting interest rates as everybody knows. So anything you want to add to that, that's what I took away out of that little sub story was to share with our listeners, 
Don't panic and move everything, especially on retirement dollars. You don't need them all in day one of retirement. I don't know in 08, Chris, when he was 55, if he was one year from retirement or a decade from retirement. But I do know he didn't need all the money in day one. Yeah, and I think that's, I think you're pointing out one of the benefits of having sound financial advice help, that it's not just responding to the little voice in your own head, because sometimes that voice, the voice of reason, which all of us have inside of us, can be drowned out at times by the panicked voice of the emotions, and you can do things that are not particularly helpful for you. And um, so, you know, a, a proper financial advisor would have walked them through all this and looked at saying, and maybe there, there could have been every reason in the world to go totally to the stable value fund at the time. But somebody should have assessed that and seen. And, and if the, if the risks really weren't there, I suspect what is, what you're saying is true that they, that was an overreaction, a knee jerk reaction that, you know, I'm trying not to play. Well, in hindsight, it was a bad idea because it could have gone down even more, right? There, you know, 2008 to 2018 might've turned out differently uh, than, than what it actually did. And we have to be careful not to sound like geniuses when we look with hindsight and judge a situation. But I don't, I mean, you didn't read me any evidence that they did any kind of evaluation as to why this might be a good or bad idea. And if it was a great idea on the moment he did it, uh, for how long should one be in there? And it would be hard to justify uh, being in a stable value fund for 10 full years uh, under practically any circumstances, although some unique circumstances may exist. I, you know, this, it's, um, that would be, um, atypical, we would we would say. So, having somebody walk you through trying to reinforce that voice of reason in your head, there's all the there's all the reason in the world there to have competent financial advice. Right. We we have said before on the show, and and I've mainly said it that in the accumulation phase, I question the value that most investment advisors, not financial planners, the difference between financial planner and investment advisor, that I question the value that most investment advisors offer to an accumulation portfolio. You listening to this podcast, you Vanguardian, do-it-yourself VGs, we like to call them, Vanguard engineers who manage their own assets. You realized a long time ago, Passive investments, well-diversified, low-cost pays off. However, for some people, having an investment advisor to keep them from jumping off the ledge is invaluable. Mm -hmm. And even Vanguard themselves have pretty much said that's the number one benefit in a study they came out with trying to quantify the value of a financial advisor, an investment advisor. Uh, the biggest value that they ascribed to it. And there's about eight different things that they felt an advisor could help someone do. Uh, most of them, in my humble opinion, uh, are common sense and have been replaced with computers. But the main one, uh, emotional risk, helping people pull back from the ledge uh, could have been really, really beneficial for this gentleman and for anybody who's experiencing that panic. So uh, I don't know. I don't know if he had anybody back then, but it would have been nice if he did. Maybe they wouldn't have, have 
made these decisions. Or as you said, Chris, maybe there was a, a viable reason why you move everything to cash in 08 after the market's down 38%. But I don't know. The story didn't get into it. Only thing before we move on to the next people, one thing they pointed out, and, and it did make me pause, and it gives us a little bit of room to add some more uh, color to this this side shoot, if you will, to their article, the reporters went on to say this couple, 70 and 75, with a few health issues, live in a 13-room Victorian house worth $300,000 that they purchased in 97 for $37,000. Significant capital gains built up in there. I will concede that. Quite significant capital gains. But capital gains well within the tax-free limits of half a million dollars for a married couple. To save money, in the wintertime, they turn the home down to 60 degrees and limit themselves to living in just two rooms that they try to heat with a pellet stove. It's told or is saying to me, Chris, maybe they have too much house. Maybe downsizing might help them uh, in one degree or another. And I believe they have a thirty dollars or a $60,000 home equity loan, $30,000 home equity loan on their home that's costing them $300 a month. $300 a month for this particular couple is a lot of money. And the home equity loan is eating up $300 a month. Plus, I'm sure the interest on that home equity loan is now higher. Most of them have just a one-year term before it readjusts in rising interest rate environments. So the only thing running through my mind that I was thinking was twofold. They could downsize, but they may not want to. They may have a lot of memories there. I concede that. Maybe they don't want to deal with the packing and the headaches and all the crap that's going to go with it. I concede that as well. I moved 12 years ago. It stinks. But there's also a possibility that they take a home equity line, excuse me, a reverse mortgage line of credit and pay off that $30,000 and let the remaining equity in their house cover the quote unquote payments. And it would free up the 30000 It will free up the debt. That will still be a debt against their house. It'll still be a, a mortgage, if you will. One is a mortgage that is a HELOC, and they have to pay it now monthly. The other will be a home equity line of credit. Uh, what do they call it? HECM? Uh, isn't that what they call the Not a HELOC. That's the reverse HECM. version. Yeah, the reverse mortgage version of a HELOC. Is called a HECM, mm -hmm. and that would still have the 30000 of debt, but rather than their very, very limited cash flow going to pay it back, the equity and appreciation in their home could be used to offset that when the last one passes away. So that was just an idea running through my thought that if, if these were people sitting across the table from me or if I bumped into them out on a hike, as I have in the past, hearing people talk about things and then, then I just start chatting to them, I might have shared some of this, that downsizing or, or at least a, a heckum reverse mortgage might help with some of their cash flow. Uh, especially the reverse mortgage, they could borrow up to half the value or $150,000, pay off the $30,000 of debt. They'll still have a $120,000 line of credit that they might be able to use to, to maybe keep the house warmer than 60 degrees and limited to just two rooms. 
But when I saw the house and the size, I can't help but think of my mom and dad. My dad, and I haven't shared this, folks, his health is not doing well, and he's in a rehab facility, and he may end up having to stay in there for life uh, as a nursing home. Uh, fortunately, he is improving, but I think his days of living independently are over. That said, as these people age, I think staying in a third room Victorian home is going to become hotter and hotter and hotter and moving is not going to become easier, easier, or easier. I'm sure their family, especially their son, who's a physician is chatting with them about this, but I just wanted to share with all the listeners that this is another thing you could be thinking of as well. If you have money that's tight, but you have equity in your home, you may be able to use a reverse mortgage line of credit. We're not advocating you run out and get one. We're advocating you talk to someone who understands them, not us. We don't do them. We refer someone out to a reverse mortgage specialist, but it is a tool that they might want to consider. Any thoughts on that before we move on to the next people? Yeah, I think those are all good things to consider. It's hard okay. to, you know, since we're getting just a little bit about these folks' cases, and like you said before, we're not trying to give them you know, specific advice, but just kind of general ideas to consider. There might be reasons why they haven't done some of the stuff that we're mentioning, but it certainly would be worth contemplating. I agree. The next couple live, uh, it's, it's a unique couple. Uh, they highlight the woman. I, I, they're not married. They're, they're just kind of shacking up together. And um, they, they highlight the woman part of this couple. So she has $240,000, Chris, and she spends about $38,000 a year. And I like what she begins with. She said a sailing trip she did from Canada to the Bahamas shortly after 9-11 prepared her for what she later discovered to be the ups and downs of retirement. And the reason I like how she put that, and she just goes on to say that living on the boat, her and her former husband encountered all these things they never, ever imagined they would encounter when they were leaving. 30 knot winds, wreckage of ground zero. I don't think anybody would ever expect to encounter wreckage of ground zero um, from 9-11. Uh, when they passed Manhattan in their boat, and then calm blue waters in the Caribbean with no storms. So they just said it didn't really turn out the way we thought. It was always something different. And that's what the first couple shared and what the authors share and what I'm trying to share with you. And when you do a retirement analysis, all you do it yourselfers. And you write your spreadsheets. I know you all love that. And you sit up all night writing your spreadsheets. It's not a set it and forget it, do it and move on. Your plan, and when I used to deliver plans, I would always begin, or at least if I remembered, I would always begin something to the effect of everything I'm about to review with you is wrong. And then I would say, you're probably wondering why you paid me a fee to deliver something to you that's wrong. The reason it's wrong is I can't predict the future and things are going to happen that you have no idea are going to happen. And I have no idea are going to happen. We just know they're going to happen. We just don't know when, where, how. We just know things 
are going to happen. And you might be thinking, well, why the hell would I want to do a retirement analysis then if it's wrong? Because what you're really looking for, folks, are the trend lines and the projections. You're not looking to know exactly what you're going to spend on utilities in 13 years or 23 years or 33 years from now. You think that really matters? Absolutely not. What matters is the trend line of those utilities. Well, gee, that utility bill is generally rising, and it seems to be rising historically at about 6% a year. And your current total expenses on utilities are this. And you're looking at the trend line, and then you're going to mix that with all your other expenses and your income and your earnings. And you're looking for trends more than anything, not the exactness of the numbers, So I know that's a hard concept for you do-it-yourselfers to wrap your arms around, especially the engineer ones where everything has to fit just right. Although one engineer did write to me and say, hey, Jim, a lot of engineers build tolerances into their measures. And his point was some of us build that into our retirement. And we know there's going to be things we can't project, but we'll build tolerances in. That's great. Make sure you build those tolerances in because as this person pointed out, they didn't picture 9-11 happening. They didn't picture calm waters in the Caribbean, but 30 not wins when I guess when they first left. Things just didn't go the way they still got there, but they didn't quite go the way and they had to react to it. And she's sharing that's what retirement is. She goes on to say, and this is her advice to people. And this, her quote, it is important, she's talking about retirees, to be flexible and resilient. Sometimes you start out with plan A or B, but end up with plan C or D. Every day can be an adventure. So do keep that in mind, that your retirement is just not going to flow the way you think. You might be the other guy at some point in time and update your analysis on a consistent and regular basis. Don't overanalyze the accuracy of your numbers. Just interpret the trends that the numbers are showing. Anything you want to add on that, Chris? Nope, I agree with that. Okay. All right. She did say that this recent downturn has wiped out 20% of her nest egg, leaving her now about $240,000. So it was higher, but she's lost 20% uh, since this article came out on the 24th, uh, which tells me she probably was in a moderate-ish style portfolio, maybe a little bit more aggressive than moderate. But again, she said, this decline is very alarming to me. She also has to deal with something unique, Chris. She's Canadian. So she also has to deal um, with the the monetary exchange uh, and that the Canadian dollar is weakening. So that's another thing that she has to to deal with. Uh, She goes on to say, looking at my holdings is not good for my mental health. I think, again, maybe what this person could benefit from or listeners in general. I, I, I don't know her and I don't, I'm not giving advice to her, 
but she might not need all $240,000 or, or what was probably closer to 280-ish or so thousand before the, the drop happened. And if she had the concept of a see-through portfolio, rather than trying to look at her retirement as one big portfolio, one big asset allocation, see into it and see the spending that she's assigning to these dollars. And I can guarantee you, I'm sure some of those dollars, I don't know how many, but some of that now $240,000, she probably won't need for quite some time, maybe eight years from now, 10 years from now, 12 years from now, where she won't feel as bad knowing that those dollars are down, she doesn't need them. And maybe inside her portfolio, some of her dollars aren't down much at all. She doesn't say what her allocation is if she has a, a uh, balanced portfolio of equities, cash, and bonds. Or is it, is it all equities? We don't know. We have no idea what she's invested in. But maybe some of the dollars aren't down or aren't down much at all. So maybe her whole portfolio is down 20%. But an analysis might show that a lot of those steeper losses are needed for a while and she has enough money with, with no loss or maybe very modest or minimal loss that she's going to use now to fund some expenses. I'm just hypothetically explaining things here, folks. So maybe it's not quite as bad. I get the impression she doesn't have that see-through portfolio, that concept of identifying her spending, categorizing her spending, and then dividing it through her portfolio. And I do think that concept can help. Yeah, I think it's it's just add some, I guess, realism. Well, not, not realism, but more of this stark reality. Um, it's not like positioning is going to magically make everything fine. I do want to point that out and rec- you know recognize that she's only got two hundred and forty thousand dollars and she's relatively young at this point and she's burning through that money fairly quickly, so it's not going to magically do anything. It can clarify your situation, which a lot of the things and talk to retirees. If you're not a retiree yourself, talk to some retirees and and one of the biggest issues we find is is the feeling uncomfortable because you don't know, you, you just can't see clearly, you don't have a good understanding of your situation. Having a good understanding of your situation is the, you know, a great first or second step in making a plan that actually works. So that's where kind of this compartmentalization or see-through portfolio idea that Jim is talking about can, can really help. It, it's going to lay out for you, gee, what do I really need? What do I really, you know, what, what can I foresee now with my current behavior? And when is this needed and for what? And what, what exposures do I have? What risks do I have? And the, the challenging part with $240,000, you're not going to be in a position to protect yourself much from risks, but kind of recognizing what they are and doing what you can to mitigate those risks can make those days, you know, she's deep into retirement. She's fully retired at this point. And, and part of the battle is to um, enjoy it and not be fearful every single day about your situation and adding some clarity to the situation, even if it doesn't cure all ills, uh, I think goes a long way. So I'll point that out. Okay. One thing I do want to finally wrap up with her, and I think I, I agree with what she's doing here, 
and I think you will as well, Chris, when we work with people directly in our office. She does say her mom, who is 99, may leave her an inheritance. But as far as her planning is going, she's factoring in no inheritance. She's not counting on it. And we kind of favor that because if you rely on an inheritance and it never comes, you may end up spending more money prior to the death of the person who's supposed to be leaving the inheritance than you should have or would have. And now it leaves you in a very precarious situation. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I think that's good sage advice, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, I do, unless you're kind of earmarking it for um, flexible discretionary things. Like, okay, I want we want to do a trip or we want to do X, Y, Z, but we're not going to do it unless we get the inheritance. That's almost like planning for it or at least being prepared for it, but you're not spending it proactively. That's where you get into trouble a lot of times. Although I would counter that with her mom's 99. If her mom has a substantial amount of assets at this point, um, they never get into how much. Yeah, we don't, we don't know. If it's not a lot, then certainly a 99-year-old could have health issues that could burn through a chunk. But if her mom's sitting on tons of assets at this point, uh, it might be too pessimistic to look at her situation as she's not going to get an inheritance. That there, there might be, and this is just you know food for thought again, we don't have the, the details here, but I would say that uh, in, in a few cases, uh, I've seen parents of folks I was talking to who had so many assets that they really couldn't foreseeably burn through them all, but they could burn through a chunk. And so they wanted me to do a plan uh, that included some small amount of inheritance. They essentially decided, you know what, there's no way they're going to leave us less than 300000 You know, it could be as much as a million and a half, but there's no way that we're going to get less than three hundred. It's just, I just can't see that happening. So, so can we use that in the planning? And and I think that's reasonable. You'll have to, these are all judgment calls, right? Trying to tell the future and make reasonable assumptions when you're putting together a projection about your, your future finances. But that might be a way to kind of uh, split the difference and, and not ignore it completely because that maybe that's, that's too unoptimistic, (laughs) So just yeah, proposing that as a little extra food. Okay. The next gentleman, we're going to go through him quickly. Uh, there was one thing that just jumped out at me that I thought I could share with everyone listening, even if you're not in his situation. But um, this gentleman, uh, he is 63 years old. He is divorced with two children. Uh, he's a shop dresser. I got to say he was a very well dressed. He's got these Vans sneakers that I want a pair of. I like them in the in the picture. I was like, wow, I like those sneakers. Um, anyways, he has about $158,000 of investment, folks. He has $600,000 of rental properties. He rents Section 8 housing to low-income people. Apparently, that was always a passion of his. I don't know if he does it for profitability or order of altruism, but he rents to low-income Section 8 people in New Jersey. And he spends about $80,000 a year, the majority of it coming from his rental income. And he just goes on and shares a little bit about himself, things that he likes to do. He lives very, very, very frugally. That, that I will admit, when, when you read his articles on, on what he does, um, one thing that he does share with, with people, 
he does say, if you're going to retire, seek purpose with your life. Don't sit around or expect just one hobby or one organization to fulfill all of your needs. He's just encouraged people to, to get out and do things with themselves when they retire. Surprisingly, a lot of people return to work within two years of retirement. And they return to work for really two reasons. Some need the money. They should have never retired to begin with, and they have no choice. Others are just truly bored, and they don't like feeling like they're not contributing to society anymore. They like that that feeling. They like knowing that there's someone or some group or some organization relying on them. They have self-purpose and, and reason to get up in the morning, as they say. Anyways, that's what he's sharing. The big thing that I took away from it and that I want to relay to our listeners, and we briefly spoke about this uh, today, Chris, with, with some clients of ours. He has multiple rental properties. I just want to make sure I would encourage anyone with real estate, even your own real estate, to make sure that you have the proper legal documents in place and they're not boilerplate power of attorney documents from a lazy attorney. They're an actual attorney who recognizes the uniqueness of real estate and has the proper language, even for your own personal home, not just rentals like this gentleman has, have the proper language in them. So if you are mentally incapacitated, death is easy. Death is done. It's, it's final. It's if you are incapacitated and can't make legal decisions and someone now needs to step in and manage or sell your real estate. If you don't have the proper documents in place, it's going to be very, very difficult to dispose of or borrow off of or rent properties. I am sure this man has everything in place and I'm not questioning him. I'm just trying to get people to understand. Sadly, and I see this a lot, power of attorney forms that uh, attorneys put together for their clients in estate documents have just boilerplate language and they do precious little editing. Longtime listeners will know one of the smartest estate planning attorneys I ever knew was Peter Scott. And he used to come on this show with us until he's retired. And goodness, I haven't talked to Pete in years, Chris. We need to, to look him up. It's been at least one or two years since I chatted with Pete. But one of the things he told me he made so much money on was taking one side or the other in a dispute over real estate that could have all been avoided if the person who is now incapacitated, he said, he being Pete, had proper power of attorney documents drawn up to begin with or proper trust documents and then had the real estate actually titled to the trust. It's great to create a trust. Not so great if you didn't title it to the trust. Or have a trustee that's actually there or a lineage to replace trustees who eventually may pass away or choose not to serve. And it's those simple types of mistakes that screw up the perfect estate plan. So when I saw that he's getting most of his money from Section 8 housing, that's low income, could be difficulties in paying rent, may have to, to do some sort of eviction notices, I don't know, at some point in the future may have to manage those properties and the cash flow and the upkeep. I, I would assume he has, but anybody listening, make sure 
you have the proper estate planning documents. And when it comes to real estate, Pete told me, even on your own home, your home or any real estate you own should be identified in your power of attorney form by the legal address. And he went, he being Pete, went so far as to say, not just the legal street address, go right to the county on what that legal address may be. Sometimes they break it down by plot or, or location or whatever. They're all different. Put the legal address in there, in the street address, if you'd like, identifying the property and what powers you are granting. And married couples should do the same thing. He's, but sadly, a lot of estate planning attorneys just put generic boilerplate language saying that any real estate I own, the person can buy, sell, lease, rent, mortgage, blah, blah, blah. And then that's it. And Pete said where the issue in the holdup comes is trying to get title insurance on the sale of a home when one of the joint owners is mentally incapacitated at the moment and can't make a legal decision. If it wasn't specifically identified in the POA and that power specifically granted, the title insurers gum up the system and they don't want to do the title insurance. I have no idea if that's true or not. I'm only going for what Pete said. And then there's another estate planning attorney who teaches us in the Ed Slot group. She's from Nevada. And she drilled that into our heads on another class that we went to, totally independent of Pete. That's one of the biggest mistakes she said she sees with power of attorney forms. They don't identify the real estate. So when I saw his article, that's what jumped into my head. Anything jump into your head, Chris? They want to share in general? Well, just I think the overall risks and challenges of being a landlord through retirement. He's 63. He's relatively young. You're right. I looked, pulled up the picture. He dresses very well. So he looks intelligent. See those sneakers? Like I did those see sneakers? those. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, um, but stuff can happen and they can just become a burden over time. So just make sure if that's going to be a key element to your retirement plan that you uh, build into the projections professional management at a minimum, meaning someone is going to take care of all the headaches, obviously for a fee, and make sure that the holding the real estate will still make sense even though you have to pay that fee because over time you'll lose the ability and, and desire or, or both um, of um, dealing with those real estate properties as a landlord. Um, seems very romantic at first, especially when the rent is coming in regularly and and they're not calling you at all hours. Uh, or even if they do, when you're younger, then you put up with that a little bit more. As you age, that's going to become more and more of a burden. So make sure you make a plan for that and then maybe ultimately a plan for getting out of the real estate into some you know alternative holding of your money, some alternative investment, if you will, that's more hands-off and, and less uh, real estate-like. Uh, some people can have a real estate portfolio, you know, for their whole lives. And some people build real estate empires, but the honest ones will tell you it's a lot more pain in the butt than, um, it, it looks, um, to, to the lay person. So just be prepared for those things. He acknowledges that Chris in his article, because okay. he said, uh, I'm paraphrasing cause I scrolled by it, but the tenants, um, reach him at all hours of the day and night asking questions way beyond even rent. 
he said renting to Section 8 housing people is, is unique challenges of its own. Mm-hmm. So I think he, he recognizes that. And, and I'm sh- I would hope he's thinking of what you're, you're talking mm-hmm. about as well. Yeah, just make a plan for it. Okay. This next gentleman, as we wrap up, is definitely going to tie into what I thought of as I read his article. So again, again, we're just going to summarize this, this man's situation. Um, he is 65 years old. He retired five years ago. He has $800,000 of assets, folks. He spends just $20,000 a year. Read the article. This man lives so frugally. He wears, see if I can find his article down here where he just openly talks about this. Um, Somewhere in here, he says how he wears his shoes, his clothes for 10 years before buying any. He doesn't even remember. He wears his clothes for decades and rarely purchases any new ones. Although (laughs) he did, folks. You ready for this, Chris? Sit down because this man went crazy. Remember, he only has $800,000. He treated himself to new socks this past July. Mm, Nice. Well, I have to admit that I... I do in my closet as we speak have a pair of shoes that I bought in college. Now, do you still wear them? They're not, they're not my daily drivers. Obviously, I would have worn them out by now. But on the rare occasion where they're the appropriate shoe for my activity and outfit, I'll still wear them. Um, but, you know, mo- mostly that's because I hate shopping for clothes and shoes. So I... <laughs> I'll hold on to them until they just simply won't do the job anymore. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't hesitate to buy new socks. You know, I'd, I have no problem re- replenishing and refreshing my socks on a regular basis. He is building a motorcycle. Looks really nice in his picture. Hmm. One thing that jumped out at me made me realize, folks, when they say all real estate is local. He lives in Bloomington, Indiana. And I think, isn't that in or around where John Cougar Mellencamp is from or... That might be Seymour, Indiana. I don't know. John Cougar is somewhere from Mm -hmm. Indiana as well. Uh, But he bought his house, folks, 40 years ago for $33,000. Today, 40 years later, it's worth one hundred and fifty. dollars So first of all, real estate in Bloomington, Indiana seems pretty damn cheap. Mm -hmm. But second of all, there's not much growth there. I don't think that's even keeping pace with national CPI. Uh, in 40 years for 33,000 to grow to 150, that seems fairly light. I could pull out my HP 12C and figure out the return. Living on the front range of Colorado, I would love to find a place that was habitable and enjoyable to live in for 150. That would be quite the find. You couldn't, you wouldn't. It's impossible in the front range of Colorado to find a place 150,000 that at least has a roof and a floor that's not dirt. Anyways, the thing that jumped out with him when I was reading it, he's single, no wife, no kids. He's me, except I treat myself to socks on a regular basis. I, I literally do. I have this thing for socks. Remember the thing I used to have for, for camo? camo? I, I was going to say, you stopped collecting camo, now you can't collect socks. <laughs> Chris helped me move 12 years ago. <laughs> and the look on his face. Oh, my gosh. When he went into my basement where my hunting clothes were, the rack upon rack upon rack of camo. It was, it was like, all different kinds. Yeah, Hunters, it, you'll appreciate it. It was like I had ca- camo a camo store. You it, have a yeah, one. Yeah. It's like going into a store that sold camo. <laughs> I, I have since given most of it away. 
But socks, for some reason, I like a good pair of socks. So I'll buy, I'll treat myself to socks. Anyways, long-term care was what I was jumping in at mm. with his situation. Mm -hmm. Granted, he owns his house outright. There's not much equity in it, only $150,000. And he has $800,000 of savings. He's only spending 20 grand a year. Uh, I, I think all jokes aside, he might be able to live it up a little bit. I'm not saying to run out and buy a Bentley, but he is 63. You don't know how much longer your go-go phase is going to be. You may live another 20 years in retirement, maybe 25, maybe 30. I'll concede that. But your true go-go years when you can do things, they might be numbered. So I'm not, certainly we never pressure our clients to spend money, but he might want to jack it up a little, spend a couple of thousand dollars a year on, mm -hmm. on more than socks. Just, just a suggestion. Mm -hmm. But long-term care. And he acknowledges that, Chris. He said he saw his late mother suffer from dementia. And he worries about his future because he's single. But his plan is to count on his community to help him. I have great neighbors. So hopefully it will all work out. Mm. Don't count on your neighbors. That's an interesting to plan. Yeah. Care of you. Now, with $800,000, he has the cash flow. He may not want to spend it because he doesn't even buy socks except every once in a while. Long-term care insurance may be something he may want to consider. He doesn't have much equity in that home to purchase and protect him uh, for long-term care. Everybody knows I can't get long-term care insurance anymore. The building that I'm in right now is my long-term care insurance plan. It's just worth substantially, substantially, substantially more than the 150000 that he has. And I feel quite confident earmarking the entire home and its value. And I may sell it in the future and just plow that value into self-funding uh, through different vehicles, my long-term care. I may not keep it as real estate. But I think I have ample assets to cover a lot of my needs. I'm a little concerned with his situation. Now, granted, 800000 if he doesn't spend it, and he said he has it invested 60-40, moderate portfolio. He's only spending twenty grand a year. So that portfolio could grow and be his long-term care plan. But he might be able to leverage a little bit of that $800,000. 1% of it, 1.5% of it a year into a long-term care policy that could provide three, four, five years of really good coverage and not fear spending some of that 800 and enjoying himself rather than, I don't know if he's saving the 800000 for his long-term care and that's why he's living so frugally. Again, I hate to get deep into he should do this, he should do that. I'm just trying to give you guys listening some food for thought. Relying on neighbors to help take care of you isn't, in my opinion, a sound plan. It would be different if it was your family and you lived on a little commune farm and everybody was there and everybody's looking out for each other. But I have no idea who his neighbors are, how old they are. Do they love him enough where they want to go take care of him? That could be difficult. And I would encourage him or anyone to put a plan in place. And maybe that plan is Medicaid, which he could easily qualify for, but he would still have to spend all his assets. 
So if his plan is Medicaid, maybe he should spend some of his assets that he has now on fun things. Because if not, government's just going to take it from Medicaid. He has no wife. He has no children. He's got no one to really leave the money to. So if he dies, who's going to get it? I would assume a charity or maybe his neighbors. And what will the neighbors do or the charity do with it? They're going to spend it because that 800000 is deferred spending. Someone's going to spend it, him, the government, or whoever inherits it. But it's going to be spent. I'm just thinking that maybe there's a little bit more room here for him to spend and enjoy things. But put a plan in place, even if it is Medicaid, get a plan in place. Make sure the legal documents are in place for your neighbor to help you. If something happens to you, what right does your neighbor have to come help you pay bills? Or, or help you with your finances or step in and make a medical decision for you. Who's going to do all that? I struggle with that all the time with my own finances. I don't have anyone. So these are some of the things as a single man that I'm looking at just running through my head and anyone else there. If Medicaid listening, any podcast listener, especially those of you who don't have much in assets and you're trying to weigh because the concept of a see-through portfolio and a fund number is how much can you spend on fun now? If Medicaid is going to be your answer, that's great. Make sure the plan is in place for people to come in legally and help you. Make sure the plan has been specified and stated that this is what you're trying to do. And someone has the power of attorney to assist you with paying bills and spending down those assets that must be spent first before Medicaid will, will take over. But if Medicaid is going to be your plan, I question keeping a lot of those assets during your go-go years. Maybe you're going to want to spend a little bit more and enjoy yourself because if you don't, Medicaid will. And... I don't know. It just kind of defeats the purpose of living what last few years of go-go we have at 63. I'm going to turn 60 in a few months, folks. I ain't no spring chicken anymore. I know my go-go years are numbered. And I, I deal with this with my clients and now I'm dealing with it with myself. And it's weird. But I know my days are numbered as well. And I've got to look at things differently. So anything you want to add on, on any of that? Yeah, I'll, um, I do think saying it the way you did there where, you know, you're holding this money, but if you're holding it for the benefit of Medicaid, that seems, you know, that might give you some per your permission to use it for yourself. Now, obviously, this is we're we're focusing on the LTC, the long-term care issues. There's other things he likely needs to fund in his retirement and and needs to consider. But uh, that is something to keep in mind, that if you're, you're hoarding assets only to have them sucked up uh, as you go into LTC and you end up on, in Medicaid anyway, um, that knowing that ahead of time, you probably wouldn't have done it that way. Second thing is, this illustrates in some areas of the country, uh, the home equity can be a very viable resource for your long-term care needs once you leave the home if you're single. You know, and even if you're married, once the second of you leaves the home, you no longer need the home. It can be sold, and that what is normally a what we would call an illiquid asset becomes liquid and available for other things. Hundred and fifty thousand is not going to go very far. So that's kind of the 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 flip side to the benefit is you live in a place where it's the real estate's very inexpensive, 
but that it doesn't create that natural resource that could potentially be used down the road um, in, you know, in an event that you leave the home and need care in a facility or something like that. So uh, he has that he has that extra challenge where his only substantial reserves are already in liquidity are already in these liquid assets of the 800,000 that you mentioned. Um, so those of you out there using your house as the plan, make sure your house is going to be valuable enough to create enough equity to fund what you're trying to fund. Uh, if you live in an area of the country that's, that's like this one that's being described here, that, uh, obviously isn't going to go very far. So, um, just pointing that out as well. So anyways, folks, I hope people found this a little bit interesting it a lot of the the elements that we're we're talking about really apply to people yes with less than a million but also people with two three four five six million dollars you you still have to do these calculations and and look at this i'm not saying that someone with six million dollars needs to worry about medicaid no totally different but you still have to put an aging plan in place and figure out how you're going to do that and how you're going to fund it. And if you're going to use the leverage of insurance or not, if you're going to fund it with equity, is it going to be illiquid equity? If it is, you have to have kind of a bridge available to you that you can spend from while the illiquid asset is, is waiting to be sold or, or needs to be held because it wouldn't be the opportune time to sell. I mean, there's, everyone has all these little different planning nuances that they have to pay attention to that apply to them. I was just trying to give people a little bit of food for thought. We certainly, and if it came across that way, I'll apologize to these people in the article. We weren't questioning what they're doing. We weren't questioning the situation that they're in. It was just things that jumped out at me that I hope people in their situation are addressing and you as listeners are addressing it in your own personal situation as well. Perfect. Well, thanks uh, for bringing that article to, to the attention of, of me and uh, our listeners. And uh, can't wait to see what next week's topic is. If you already know it, you can divulge it. Otherwise, we'll surprise people with something. Do you know what it is next week? I have no idea. Okay. So we'll surprise everyone, including myself. Including me. I have to well, think of it. True. True. So we appreciate everybody listening and stay tuned a little bit later this week for our Q&A show. And we'll be back with you next week with a new EDU show. See you then. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556.
The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 